Hi there. Welcome to another Dishcast. It's been quite a, a fall of intense conversation. We're moving away from foreign policy right now to talk about the domestic politics of the United States, in particular, the, the Democratic Party and its base and its coalition. I'm still up here in Provincetown, by the way, about to head home. Of course, I don't know when we're going to quite uh, release this, so i got to be careful about dates. But basically, I'll be in England for Thanksgiving, which is now kind of new tradition for me, mainly to see my mom, who's in a nursing home, and you know, you try and get all the time you can with her while you can. Back in D.C. thereafter, which is going to be great to be back home. The floors have apparently been laid. The paint has dried. I have, I have an apartment to go back to. All of which is just blather before I... Also, by the way, I need to tell you this. Also, coming up. Coming up. A really interesting book. Kurt Camp Bohannon on, on a book called Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. And talk to Jennifer Burns about her new biography of Milton Friedman. Matthew Crawford discusses modern life and how to survive. McKay Coppins on Mormons and politics and the Republican Party. And Alexandra Hudson, all of whom are coming up. Thank you again for subscribing and listening. The numbers are remarkable. This season is up to a really roaring start. And today it is my pleasure to introduce an old friend of mine, John Judas. And he's an editor-at-large at Talking Points Memo and a former senior editor at The New Republic, where I was lucky enough to be one of his colleagues and to edit him over the years and to appreciate what he did for that magazine. Teixeira, Rui Teixeira, I'm told is how you pronounce his name, is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a contributing columnist at The Washington Post and politics editor of The Substack, a Substack you really should check out which I often refer to, actually. It's called The Liberal Patriot. And one of the reasons they're an interesting couple to talk to, I mean, couple, I mean, you know, they're a pair of writers, (laughs) is because in 2002, they wrote an incredibly influential book called The Emerging Democratic Majority, which looked at the demographics of the United States and population growth and the way politics was running. And they thought that all this meant the Democrats had a chance to lock in a permanent majority in the 21st century. And now they've written a new book called Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The Soul of the Party in the Age of Extremes, which is a, a kind of, you can think of it as a bookend to the first book, as to what's happening to the Democratic Coalition. Why are we seeing it change? Why are we seeing numbers of its previously solid base drift away from it? And can we hold back the tide of Trumpism next year? Well, John and Rui, thanks so much for coming on. Nice to see you. Thanks for having us, Andrew. So, yeah. Sorry I couldn't be there in person, but you know what? Never mind. John, I'm going to start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about your life, um, where you grew up, and what influenced you in your journey towards becoming a political writer and journalist. I grew up in Chicago for the first 13 years. My family was uh, wealthy. We lived in the Drake Towers in Chicago. We were on the 14th floor, and the Pritzkers were on the 15th floor. That'll (laughs) give you an idea. And my parents were both in the dress manufacturing business. My mother was a designer, and my father ran the business. But 
the dress business started going out toward the coast and they sold everything in what, 1953 or 1954 and put all their money into a dress store on Worth Avenue in Palm Beach. And they just completely lost their shirt, not because they, they didn't sell the dresses, but because the rich people didn't pay. This was before credit cards. The Kennedys, for instance, were some of their customers. And their life really fell apart for 10 years. Liquor, I mean, you, you name it. And my father had a different job every year. He became a dress salesman, sort of the Willie, Willie Loman life. And I went to boarding school as a scholarship kid and then also to college under a scholarship. And my, you know, rebelliousness and feeling that I was an outsider really came from there. I mean, the experience in Palm Beach was just totally disaster because not only was their life falling apart, but uh, mine was too, because I went to the public school there, which was incredibly anti-Semitic. The kids used to call me nose, and I used to get into fights all the time. I that one. Um, and, you know, uh, by the time I was, I, I guess the, the key, key book for me when I was at boarding school was Jack Kerouac's On the Road. I read that when I was 16, and I thought to myself, I'm heading out to California sooner or later, because this is the life. And I did. I, w I went to Amherst for two years. I absolutely hated every minute of it. And I quit. And I was out of school for a year. And then I went to California. And I was in Berkeley in the 60s. So put together the experience of my parents' life falling uh, apart under capitalism and being in Berkeley in the 60s. And you'll sort of, you know, if you put those two things together, you, you'll get a lot of how I came to be politically. Rui, maybe you could give us your account of, of in a similar fashion or as to how much you want to tell us is up to you. But who, where were you born and, and grew up? Well, Andrew, I was born right in Washington, D.C. at the now defunct Columbia Hospital for Women. And I grew up where I now live, albeit in a different part of that uh, geographical entity, Silver Spring, Maryland. And I was raised by a single mother, albeit an educated one, who put tremendous value in education. My father, who they got, you know, she got, she and he got divorced, worked for the Portuguese embassy. So I had, I was a Portuguese national. So I had a kind of cosmopolitan background in that sense. But I was always a math science guy and I was pretty good at it. So I did quite well in school and I wound up getting a graduating early and I got a scholarship to Yale and I went there and I hated it. And I was doing drugs and getting involved in very radical politics because those were always the two two things that attracted me. On the one hand, the siren call of you know, unlocking the secrets of the universe through math and science. On the other hand, the obvious fact that American society was really messed up and certainly wasn't optimally organized, and we could do a lot better than this. So that put me in a radical direction. And I what joined kind of, SDS. What kind, of, what kind of drugs? If you don't oh, want just marijuana. It. Oh, just dope. Okay. Yeah, well, that's not quite true. We don't even think of that. We, we, we don't even think of those as drugs anymore. I mean, yeah, I, I that's know, cool, I, that's cool I, I, being I, California I, sober. I did my share of LSD oh, okay. out of high school, but I, I gave up on that and just stuck to pot after a while. Okay. But, but anyway, so, you know, so I, I, I dropped out slash was kicked out, and then I wound up, like John, going to a state school, in this case, University of Michigan, and I continued to be quite radical. I got involved in Maoist politics. After Maoist. Maoist, yeah. I was, uh, I was a hardcore Marxist-Leninist, man. Wow. Picture Mao on the wall. 
you know, we were going to form You had the, a picture of Chairman Mao on the wall. On the wall, baby. Along with Lenin, of course, and so on. So I would... I was pretty hardcore. I mean, yeah, I, no, that counts as hardcore. I think that counts, that counts as, hardcore. as hardcore. What, what year are we talking about? Like the, the late 60s or early 70s? No, early, early 70s. Early, okay. This is when I met Rui. Yes, it was that's 19, right, because I was in 1972. Wow. And he was still wearing a, a Mao cap. We were both in the New American Movement, which was the precursor of DSA, one right. of the that's, precursors. That's what I did after I dropped out of yeah. the RU slash Revolutionary Communist Party. When I concluded there probably was never going to be a proletarian revolution in the United States, highly doubtful, and maybe Stalin really did kill all those people, and maybe Mao wasn't such a good guy. So, so that's when I drifted into, well, what I thought of at the time as left Bureau communism. I was always very theoretical in my commitments to a lot of these radical politics. So, you know, a lot of people might have been out there in these movements saying, you know, just smash the bourgeoisie, but I wanted to read you know, all about the backstory, about the Marxist theories, about the economic stuff, about the history. Um, but I drifted into the New American Movement with John because that was sort of the home for people who'd become disenchanted with the leftover radicalism of the 60s that bleeded into the 70s and into the new communist movement and a variety of other organizing attempts. This was an attempt to form an American type of democratic socialism. So, uh, and it was, called the, it was called the New American, new American Party? Movement. New American, American yeah. Movement. And eventually, the New American Movement merged with the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, which was Michael Harrington's group, which in turn was a split off from the Socialist Party, but we, you know, against the Shackmanites. But we, we probably don't need to get into that here. But I was involved actually in organizing the merger. I, we merged, and when I was, by that time, I was in grad school in Madison, going to grad school in sociology. And we decided we merged the two chapters of New American Movement and the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee into the Democratic Socialists of America chapter in Madison. And that eventually became the name of the merged organization, which we thought, you know, this was, we're now getting into the early 80s, would form the basis for a mass socialist movement in the United States. Well, at least at the time, that didn't, that didn't quite happen. But meantime, I was coming out of grad school with a PhD in sociology, and I'd gone to grad school because I wanted, you know, didn't want to work in a factory or anything like that. I didn't want a crap job. I wanted to think about stuff. And I was still a Marxist to some extent when I, I came to University of Wisconsin Madison. But after a while, as a professor of mine famously convinced me, you know, Marxism is interesting, but it doesn't explain enough of the variants. And I thought about that a lot and said, well, you know, you're right. It's like, you know, a good first approximation at times, but it doesn't explain everything. And there's a lot of baloney there. So, but I, I did kind of was oriented to, I wanted to be. This is where it intersects with where I finally wound up, is I wanted to be a public intellectual. I did not want to be an academic. I did not want to write referee journal articles. In fact, I thought a lot of the referee journal, journal articles of sociology were utter baloney. You know, were just like meretricious theory and excessive quantitative conjuring and just were not really of much interest. And I wanted to do something different, wanted to affect politics and policy. So I wound up evolving out of the... I had a brief stint in the polling world, but then I evolved into the think tank world in Washington, uh, first at Brookings and then at the Economic Policy Institute, the Progressive Policy Institute. I was at the Century Foundation for a while, all the while scribbling away, trying to figure out why can't the Democrats do any better than they are? What's happening with their support among the working class? Why can't they beat the other side more decisively? And that you know, takes me to the Center for American Progress in 2003, which was like, hey, you know, 
we're going we're gonna to figure out how to beat the other guys. We're going to come up with the new ideas of the future. We're going to reinvent progressivism. We're going to really do it right. The Republicans have a much better infrastructure than we do. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna fight back. And of course, it turned out CAP turned into more of an advocacy group than a think tank. And it just got worse over time. And to fast forward extremely rapidly, that's what ultimately gets me out of CAP. I left last year in August. And at that point, I just had enough. I mean, it just seemed like groupthink had completely taken over CAP and indeed the whole left institutional world. And I didn't agree with a lot of what people were saying and a lot of their priorities and even the language they use. So I found a home at the American Enterprise Institute, which while center-right is an actual like community of scholars. I mean, they actually let people do what they want and there's no party line. And they've been very nice to me and I'm thankful for that. But we also started the Liberal Patriot. The newsletter you mentioned, there's four people at CAP who are just sick of things. And we started saying, well, maybe we should write a manifesto. We discovered Substack, realized we could put out our thoughts for free. And the rest is history. And the Liberal Patriot is still around today, free to subscribe to. And that's where I developed a lot of my thinking that partially under went into the new book with John, where have all the Democrats gone? So yeah, that's kind of a whirlwind tour. But No, oh, it, was. Was it was. It was. It was a, it was a whirl, whirlwind Pit, uh, whistle stop tour of, of your life, but thank you, John. I'm just curious, both of you, you know, as as men men of the left entering the 80s and 90s, that's not an easy period in terms of trying to grapple with Reaganism, with the, with neoliberalism, with Clinton, Blair, with the adoption of market economics by the left in many ways. How mm-hmm. did you uh, navigate that, John? Let me. I mean, you you those 20 years because if we take those 20 years, the next 20 years. You, okay, so yeah, tell we, me we, how you felt about those that period. I was I was much more of an actual actually in political activist probably than Rui. I was on the national committee of this new American movement, and I was also working for a theoretical journal called Believe It or Not Socialist Revolution, which was reformist because it was called socialist rather than communist. <laughs> so we thought we had to add revolution to it. And I, I had a kind of epiphany in 1976 when our California chapters had gotten together to decide whether we should endorse Tom Hayden for Senate. And the clinching speech was by one of our members from Los Angeles who cited Lenin's State and Revolution. I don't remember what passage it was. But it came to me then that I was living in a parallel universe. <laughs> and it was really from that moment I left, I, I left organized politics then and have never returned. And I became a journalist, literally. From, uh, before that, I was a theoretician. I, I called myself a scientific socialist, that I was somebody who wanted to, scientific meaning as opposed to utopian, I wanted to understand what the world was really like. And in the late 70s, that meant the new right. And because that was the going thing. I used to go to the CPAC meetings. I was, I met Jude Winiski then. I was interested in supply side economics. I thought that's where the ideas were coming from and that the, whether they were right or wrong and that my side of the, you know, of the political spectrum had really become stale. And so that's how I got interested in writing a biography of Bill Buckley because I thought that was the way I could understand why American politics had changed in the 80s. And it's, by the way, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful book. It's, it's, 
it's for me it's great because not only tells you a lot about him and I learned a lot but that to to hear to read someone as socialist write appreciation a genuine attempt to understand uh, a man of the right I mean that kind of thing is so good for our culture and and I wish more of it were taking place but that's just my plug for that book of yours Right. So that's that's that was me in the 80s. I was trying to understand the conservatism. And as a result of that book, too, people in the Republican Party and the right were much nicer to me than people on the left. I used to say, you know, that it would it was I mean, it was it was much harder for me to get to talk to a, a left wing or a liberal congressman than Jesse Helms or something, somebody like that. Uh, I remained to some extent a socialist, market socialism, but not Marxism. Not Marx is a guiding theory, is an important theory, along with Keynes, Freud, Wittgenstein, all these things, but not a capital M Marxist. And I think that's how I, I mean, that's, that's sort of how I navigated that period. Yeah, and obviously at the New Republic. I mean, you were there. Yes. And Rick Hertzberg was the person who brought you there, is that correct? Yes, yeah. that's right. Good old Rick. What a lovely man. Absolutely. I miss him. <laughs> he was a lovely person to work alongside. So you arrive in the early 2000s and you, you kind of look at the state of play and you look at race and the new dem demographics. And, and what leads you to that first book? Maybe I'll, I'll ask you, Rui, about that first book. And what, well, what I was think one what thing that brought it to fruition? What, what brought right. it to being? Well, I think one thing that, that is important to bring in here is... The work I was doing in the 90s when I was involved with some of these other think tanks was I'd become increasingly interested in why the Democrats were failing among working class voters, particularly mm -hmm. white working class voters. What, <laughs> what explained the lack of enthusiasm? Why was the Democratic coalition changing in the way it was? Why were they getting clobbered among these white working class voters? Why couldn't they drum up any enthusiasm for the program? And I wanted to understand that better because it was clear to me by looking at the numbers that you could not possibly sustain a, a, a dominant Democratic coalition without, if you were continuing to bleed these voters. And this was, in fact, undercutting Democratic chances. So I wrote this book, America's Forgotten Majority, Why the White Working Class Still Matters. And that came out in 2000. And I think it got around quite a bit. And I think it convinced a lot of Democrats, at least temporarily, <laughs> that they needed to take that seriously. But at the meantime, other things were happening at sort of at the other end of the electorate, but Democrats were starting to do better among certain groups of highly educated voters, people in the cosmopolitan metropolitan areas, and obviously the non-white vote was continuing to grow. So in a sense, the emerging Democratic majority was an attempt to synthesize these changes that were happening in American society and American politics and put them together into a theory that suggested how the Democrats could, assuming they were able to stop the bleeding among white working class voters, they could take advantage of a lot of these other changes in terms of uh, you know, the rise of non-whites, changes among the way women voted, rise of professionals, and the very important changes that were taking place in the more dynamic sort of post-industrial areas of the country. And if the Democrats could put those things together with sort of things that were, were strong about their approach, what we called progressive centrism, that was consistent with, with how the country was trending in terms of economics and in terms of ideas, in terms of public opinion. That would actually provide them with a basis for not a permanent, but a durable majority. And that's why we wrote The Emerging Democratic Majority, to try to bring all that together into a book that would explain 
you know, how we might be moving into a different political era. But that book, just to ask John also, that book didn't say write off the working white working class. It said, no, we have to keep that. But if we add this, uh, these other groups, we can get a durable majority. Am I, is that's that correct? Absolutely right. I mean, yeah, we that's said right. we needed about 40% of the white working class vote nationwide and more in well, some Midwestern states where they were particularly large share of voters, maybe closer to 45 or whatever. I mean, the exact numbers don't matter, but we were very clear. We had a whole section in our chapter where we laid out a lot of this demographic story pointing out how important this was, and it was not negotiable, and it could not be uh, compensated for just with these other groups. So we really did, uh, we're very clear about that. But the Bowdlerized version of the thesis, Andrew, as you know, famously became demographics is destiny, particularly people became obsessed with the size of the non-white vote uh, and how it was growing. Uh, and basically, it's kind of like, we can keep it on autopilot, and we don't have to worry too much about alienating people. That was more as our I, groups are growing. As I remember, that was more the line that someone like Ron Brownstein was pushing at the time. I can't remember, but it was definitely the notion that there would be a non-white block that would essentially render the white vote pretty much irrelevant or yeah, could do well, without them. Other people were even worse, like Steve Phillips. The coalition of the ascendant, I think, was the term Ron used. Other people called it the rising. American electorate, and, and in fairness to them, I mean, the 2008 Obama election did seem to put it all together. John, uh, with, John, let me go to John. How did you, how did you, was the Obama election a kind of, uh, in some ways, presumably it's a, it's, it's a kind of a proof of principle of your original argument, because Obama did manage to keep a critical section of the white working class in the Midwest, particularly, as well as adding with enthusiasm all these other new groups, the young, African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, just to go back to the, for a second, to the, the first, the book, please. Emerging Democratic Majority, I think the thing that I was into at the time was the growth of these post-industrial metropolitan areas. And particularly things that you wouldn't think of at the time, like the research triangle in North Carolina. And the theory of the book was that that was the direction that America was going in and that the Democrats were going to pick up these votes. They would pick up, uh, again, the professionals, the women, but minorities, but, it, you know, they'd also get white working class in those areas. And indeed, they still they do have uh, a good share of that vote in those areas. But uh, again, I, I mean, I used to tell Rui, I, I don't even know, who cares about West Virginia? You know, we'll get Virginia. But that was, I think that, that at least on my part, there was a kind of blithe dismissal of what are they called? Flyover country in that sense. And so, so part of the, part of the, part of the prophecy did has come true. I mean, those areas have become really democratic, but the country is is split to a great extent between those areas and the areas that concentrate more on manufacturing, mining, resource extraction, farming. So that's a big problem. Now, now with Obama, that that was an incredible. I I was very skeptical that a black guy could win. I even wrote something I think in the New Republican. April or March saying, you know, this, I had, I had some one of these goofy polls about people who you press a button, you're a racist. And if you don't, and 
you know. So that was very surprising. I think a lot of what Obama benefited from in that first election was the voters' perception that of his intelligence and that he could handle the, the economic crisis. The, the uh, election really hinges on, it's around my birthday, September 25th, when George W. calls, calls uh, both McCain and Obama in, and it just becomes so obviously apparent at the time that Obama had the understanding to do that. Now, so when he wins, we are greeted as prophets and as seers. And I, I write for the New Republic, America the Liberal, on the theme of America the Beautiful, that the country has really changed. And I thought at the time, and to some extent, I still think that Obama had an opportunity to do maybe not all that Roosevelt did, but part of it to kind of keep a, major, keep a majority. But that required goosing the economy, getting things going pretty quickly, not a kind of drawn out recession downturn that really lasts till almost, what, 2015, 2016. This unemployment's still higher than it was in 2007. So I think Obama did have the opportunity there. He, ha he had the opportunity to change the labor laws, to do a lot of things that might have really helped. But he got sucked into this the neoliberal economics, budgets, sequesters, things like that. The, the Obamacare, the big program itself, is more modeled on you know, what you could call welfareism. It, it created the impression, again, among the middle class that they were subsidizing poor people and they wouldn't get that many benefits out of it. And when premiums did go up for people who were making $60,000, which again, we're not talking about rich people, that, that contributed to a lot of the revolt against Obama. And so in 2010, the whole, you know, the coalition falls apart, the 2008 co coalition. He wins it back in 2012 by again, moving left on economics and having an opponent Mitt Romney, who he could paint as a plutocrat who opposed the oil, the auto bailout, which is crucial in Ohio and Michigan, two states he had to win. And uh, so, you know, things seemed fine. And then, as Rui was saying, it was right after that election that the, this fantasy about the new American majority or rescindant or whatever you want to call it grew among think tankers and consultants in Washington and produce this idea that we don't really need the white working class and that we can ride the way, wave of a, a majority, minority, women, professionals, and so on. So, so that, that's where I would leave things. Yeah. I mean, one way to think about it is Obama had the opportunity to heal the great divide that we talk about in the first section of our book. And instead, that seemed to wind up going down in the coalition of the ascendant for the rising American majority. I mean, in the first part of our book, we talk about the evolving class divide and geographical divide in America between the fate of working class and college educated people, between the fate of different areas that are left behind, small town, rural and exurban America, places that based on the economic model and, and process was taking place in the last part of the 20th century did feel they were being left behind and were losing faith in the Democrats' ability to do anything about it. In fact, they saw the Democrats to some extent as being complicit in it, being just a slightly different version of what Republicans were for. 
there were the free trade agreements, the China shock in the early 2000s from China's WTO session, the dereg of the financial industry, and so on. Just a lot of things that were happening that eventually would, would, would lead to things that were much more baleful than were happening in the late 20th century, but do trace their origins back there and the incredibly slow progress by and large, these areas of progress at all, that you know, small town, rural, exurban America, if you're the sort of flyover country, the working class, they weren't doing that well and they resented both democratic and Republican elites for not fixing it, which is really where we finally get Trump. And the other part of it though, is the coalition of the ascendant philosophy or, or sort of strategy not only do you not not only do you not focus on healing that great divide because you're not aware it's enough, that much of a problem, but the inexorable trend of the Democratic Party as cultural liberalism bleeds into cultural radicalism becomes something you're not attentive to. You don't worry about because again you have this inexorable demographic force, this tailwind that will benefit you over the medium to long term, and I think it's really. You know, at the very moment of greatest triumph, Obama's 2008 victory, in a sense, the seeds of later problems were being sown because what of how they could treated uh, their... Uh, John made a, a, a reference from labor laws. I'm just mm -hmm. thinking what Obama could have done that would have, that he didn't do, that would have helped avoid those repercussions. I'm thinking, you're, I think John is saying less austerity more borrowing, which, of course, was not the consensus at the time. And people were scared yeah. of the deficit. They were scared of, but they, 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 under, they clearly, in retrospect, didn't spend enough. I guess that's true. Obamacare okay. did help some poor, struggling, working-class people afford health care in a way that was sane. The, obviously, Obama's trade policies probably didn't help. But is there something also in just the fact that this guy, Barack Hussein Obama, who is clearly an elite third culture kid just could not quite get through or was subject to deep distrust for those reasons by the white working classes in certain parts of America? I, I think that Obama's key failings were economic. They were not cultural. That comes up later. He was, in many ways, he was the last new Democrat. I mean, he understood like Bill Clinton did, that he really had to go down the down the middle on social and cultural issues. I mean, he didn't, I mean, if you remember Hillary Clinton at the convention breaking through the glass ceiling, I'm, a, I'm gonna be the first women president. Obama never talked about that. He never talked about being the first black president. So I think he was very careful on that. I mean, there are a lot of people, you know, I mean, there's a, again, a strong minority in the country who might be offended by that, but he had, I mean, I think the country has changed a lot from the, from the 60s. So I don't think that was his problem. I think the, the core failings were economic. The labor thing that I referred to was that during the 1970s, you get this coalition between Republicans and K Street, lobbies, corporations, never, never before that concentrated in Washington. And one of the things they, they take aim at is the growth of labor unions, once one third of all Americans. Uh, and one of the things they do is they exploit the weaknesses of our labor laws, which is to say, you know, Starbucks organizes, you, you hear about it in Buffalo, blah, 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 big victory. You know, they just still don't have a, a union there in collective bargaining because companies can just delay. You hear about Amazon firing workers who are trying to organize. All those things reflect the weaknesses in the labor laws. 
If we're going to have a revival of a labor movement, one thing we need to do is strengthen the laws. Obama comes in office with a majority and a cloture-proof majority in the Senate. And his friends in Chicago, Penny Pritzker, Lester Crown, and I forgot the third, the third one, a guy, send him a letter and say, we're worried that you're going to make a priority of changing the labor laws, that they'll be able to be card checks so, so workers could fill out their cards in a majority and they could then have an election. Oh, and, what, and so Obama leaves it behind. He doesn't do it, just as Bill Clinton again. And that's a, that was a big mistake in terms of the future of the Democratic Party, because what labor did for it, it gave it a mass base in the working class. It gave it people who, who worked or who organized, who provided candidates who weren't, you know, high-flying lawyers or whatever. And also, it was a major financial contributor to the Democratic Party. And as labor begins to decline in the 70s and 80s, the Democratic Party changes. And it really, especially in Washington, becomes a party that, that unites the Democratic parts of the corporate America, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, parts of Wall Street, with the organizations that come out of the 60s civil rights, environment, feminist. And there's a, that's the really those, that coalition has a kind of hegemony, even during the George W. Bush years. And it's only broken, believe it or not, in the last few years with the Dobbs decision. All of a sudden, <laughs> something happens that makes a lot of people realize that it's no longer, that they have to, that the, this, this kind of politics that had developed out of the 60s and continued was not going to continue anymore and was really threatened. So anyway, that's the, those, were the, those were the politics. By another, th another thing actually strikes me, which is that yeah. you, you had these, this rhetoric about the emerging inevitable majority of non-whites and, and progressives and blah, blah, blah. At the same time, you have really rather high increase in immigration. So you, you, you kind of... You kind of suggest to people that you, you white working class, you're, you're the past anyway because you're going to be outnumbered, and this is just grist for the anti-immigration message of a Donald Trump, which is that in order to survive, you've got to stop the immigration. In order to survive, you've got to fight back in a in a white in a sort of white politics, as it were. A white. Yeah, I mean, I think the that's kind of what I meant about the seeds of some of these cultural conflicts that redounded against the Democrats really are laid during Obama's terms. Because the immigration thing is a perfect example. It's during Obama's terms that we see exactly what John's talking about. The, you, the more the weight of the labor movement decreases, the, uh, the you get an increased weight of the groups, the advocacy groups, the foundations, the nonprofits, the left wing of the party, the activists who are on social media, and they're all pushing a certain kind of line about an issue like immigration, which is that no human being is illegal. To crack down on border, you know, have a tight border security and crack down on immigrants, as Obama did during part of his terms, is, is fundamentally, you know, borderline racist and xenophobic. And what Democrats should be about is anything but that, where we should be open, we should basically, you know, have a very, very, very liberal asylum system and so on. And you also saw it in the evolution of views on crime with the Black Lives Matter movement coming together in 2013-14 and the beginning of, a, of a, the 
what's called a national conversation about race, which is really a national lecture on race, <laughs> where everybody is told that uh, whites have privilege and we're a structurally racist society and all disparities are attributable to racism. And that, you know, the fundamental problem isn't crime. The fundamental problem is cops who beat up on people and that it, to even talk about law and order again is borderline racist. So I think a lot of the things that come to define the democratic brand in the late part of the teens and are still with us today, they're really part and parcel of the process that leads the Democratic Party away from being focused on working class voters, away from economics that would benefit working class voters, away from promoting unionization, things that are obviously and clearly uh, of interest and of benefit to working class people, and putting a lot more bets, indexing heavily on a lot of these culturally freighted issues, which, which appeal to their, a lot of their new voters who are college-educated whites, a lot of them younger, quite liberal, and who, again, punch way above their weight in the party uh, in terms, and especially, we, I don't think we mentioned this yet, the shadow party, which we say really plays a key role in the Democratic Party and how it, uh, its priorities are set and its image to, among the public increasingly in the part of, in the 2000s and up to today. I, I mean, there, there was an assumption at the time that, that the increase in uh, immigration both legal and illegal would eventually redound to the Democrats. I mean, that was part of the, the uh, majority minority thesis. I, I think it, the, the moment at which I, I realized fully how, how uh, this was not gonna work, I was in uh, Texas in the 2014 election. And Wendy Davis was the Democrat who's known for her pro-abortion stance, pro-abortion rights, running against Abbott, who was, you know, really a hardline conservative. And I, start, I had some conversations with Hispanics, Tejanos, whatever you want to call And I came to understand that they were not enthusiastic about Wendy Davis. And Obama veterans had set up this group, Battleground Texas, that was actually supposed to get a majority in Texas. Texas was supposed to become like California on the basis of the Hispanic vote there. In the election, a Abbott actually wins the male Hispanic vote, and he slightly loses the female vote. Because those voters, you know, they didn't, they weren't crazy about abortion politics. And she didn't have something that much to offer on economics. And lo and behold, as you know, we discover in 2020, Hispanic voters are, are no more enthusiastic about illegal immigration than other voters. So again, I think that that was a, that was a moment of revelation. And for, for Rui and me, it meant that we weren't just talking about the problem of losing white working class votes, but losing working class votes, period. And you, you kind of saw that come to, come to fruition in, in the Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign, because there you have an explicit stated strategy by Robbie Mook and others that we're, 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 we're not that interested in the white working class. We can win with these other groups that we can more reliably turn out. A notion that opposing some of the opinions that many white working class people had, namely, for example, stopping illegal immigration was a function of their moral failure as opposed to their as opposed to their judgment of their own interests so i, I mean they they thought that they could run on identity politics basically and mm. people told me that at the time who we were close to the ca mm -hmm. campaign and on trump being a bad guy mm -hmm. 
you know, to the extent that that the Dobbs awakened people, the Dobbs really awakened people that there wasn't this consensus on social policy. Trump awakened people that there was a problem with democratic economics. He ran on stuff like corporations leaving the country, or leave, you know, going to Mexico deals. He even was uh, critical of the financial industry during that uh, campaign. And he talked about a better health care uh, bill that would uh, actually get insurance to everybody. So, I mean, I think he, Trump was a wake-up call in terms of democratic economics. And in, again, if you look at the Clinton campaign, uh, almost uh, entirely focused on the uh, Hollywood access tape and Trump being a, uh, a bad guy. Trump campaign on, was, on the contrary, pretty policy-heavy. And pretty much, you know, when you'd go to his rallies, he wouldn't, the first thing he wouldn't talk about is Mexican rapists or whatever. I mean, he'd said a lot of very terrible things in the course of that campaign, but he focused a lot on economics and he focused a lot on immigration. So again, I think that that campaign was a, was a wake-up call, but it was one, you know, we're still trying to absorb. Okay. No, there was a study that was done of, of, of Hillary's you know, ad spending and Trump's. And what it showed is that 80 to 90% of Hillary's spending was about how Trump was a bad guy. And 80 to 90% of Trump's spending was about you know, trade deals, immigration, the elites who are, who are screwing you, runaway shops, and so on. So it was really a contrast. And, and wars. And wars. Right, yeah. right. Also, again, that's a policy issue. So it, it really should have made people take notice that you're doing this. And as a result of Trump doing this and that differential approach of the campaign, Trump cleans up among these white working class voters in the Midwest. It gets really big. Formerly, Democrats had been sort of holding the line among a lot of these voters in some elections. Totally crashes in 2016. And in addition, instead of getting a surge of votes among Hispanic voters, for example, they did not. Trump actually did slightly better than the than the Republican candidate Romney did in 2012. So that should have told people something was going on. These Hispanics, even the non-white working class voters, are not you know, just immigration voters, just anti-racism voters, just people of color. They've got different priorities. They're thinking about things in a different way. And that, that really comes home to roost in 2020, Andrew, when even though Biden narrowly wins the election, that Hispanics, especially Hispanic working class voters, bail out en masse from the Democrats. Not that the Democrats lose the vote, but their mar their advantage among those voters drops by 16 to 18 points and more like 20 or 22 among Hispanic working class voters. So this is like a big deal. This should have been a signal that there's something going on with the Democratic formula and how it appeals to working class voters that is, that is deeply wrong. And why is it that now, and you see this in the polls today, the Republicans have become, in a pure nose-counting sense, the party of the working class. They get more working class voters than the Democrats do regularly. And, well, let's, and we let see me, that in polls now. Let me play devil, devil's advocate here and, and say, well, look, with Biden, you kind of got roughly what you are asking for. Here you have this, essentially a man from Scranton, Pennsylvania, a man who has historically been in the center of the Democratic Party, if not somewhat to its right in some, in some respects. You have economic policies that are big. We have huge, big stimulus with COVID. You have another big stimulus afterwards. You have the CHIPS Act. 
You have the IRA with all this massive public investment in environmental energy, I mean, environmentally friendly energy, and so on and so forth. And yet, that hasn't gotten through somehow. That that is that the the Democratic president enacting policies that really are or have been argued to be in the interests of the white working classes, industrial refiring the industrial base, large amounts of spending on ordinary people's incomes in the first couple of years because of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So I'll, why? I'll... So <laughs> explain to me why you didn't have your solution and it hasn't worked. Okay. Uh, well, a lot of it has. To Hi be. there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>